Welcome to episode 346 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express here do not reflect those of our institutions, our current employers, our future employers, our families, our children, or our pets, uh, and maybe not even ours three weeks from today. Uh, joining me for the news roundup, and we're just doing a news roundup this week, Sultan Meji, uh, who is the founder and CEO at an AI company in banking. Uh, he also focuses on security at Carnegie Endowment and Washington University. Sultan, good to have you. Hi, Stuart. Great to see you. And uh, Brian Egan, who's a, my partner at Steptoe and has done work on national security, cross-border disputes, international cybersecurity, and data protection. Uh, Brian, good to have you. Thanks, Stuart. Good to be here. All right. And uh, Maury Schenk, uh, London-based lawyer and technologist. Maury, uh, it's great to have you too. It's great to be here from across the pond. All right. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program, as well as the chief provocateur. Uh, so uh, why don't we start with uh, this week in adversary tactics? Uh, what are the bad guys doing? Uh, and it's getting less and less plausible to call this the solar winds uh, uh, episode, but that's what we're calling it because we haven't got a better name. Uh, Sultan, uh, what do we know about solar winds? That we didn't know last week well let's break this up into a couple of pieces number one is the ripple effects of this as, as we've said previously on the podcast are going to just continue and and some of those ripples might end up being actually bigger than solar winds and and the undercurrent of of this becomes my second comment which is you know microsoft is clearly going to be playing catch-up for years to to dig through this because of uh <clears throat> issues securing bits of Office 365 and Azure. And then the third is that- Yeah, and you know, actually, if we were giving this a yeah. name, it probably would be yeah. the Azure hacks. I I, I would I would probably go and just call this Microsoft has has been uh, pwned pretty badly here, but uh, you know that's 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 my impolitic way of talking about it. Um, and then the third thing we know is that it's going to take a long time, not just to find everything, but then to clean it up. And I'm sure, you know, you guys have all heard the same things about ripping out entire networks and all that kind of stuff. And I do wonder at what point the Microsoft share price will start taking a hit from this. Yeah, it's uh, I, I think the problem is it's not clear that anybody else is going to be more secure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you have such a small number of players, really three in the space that operate like this. And so much of the technology overlaps that it's, you know, if it's if one secures it, the other might not. And, you know, we have this technical debt issue across the entire cloud infrastructure we're all working with that, you know, will take a long time to clean up. And, and I think I said this first in probably 1997, and I'm going to be the broken record of broken records, which is we can't invest enough in cleaning up technical debt. Um, and we just need to keep doing it and hearing about, you know, zero days coming out of this, which we're hearing about since last week as well, has just continued to make this something that everybody needs to be paying a lot more attention to. Well, like just like uh, national debt, uh, in the long run, you're going to be right. But uh, in the long run, as we all know, you're dead too. It's, it's easier to, yeah, it's easier to quantify the creation of $23 trillion of debt versus, uh, you know, how many cloud uh, virtual machine instances or something like that. Okay, and uh, uh, Malwarebytes uh, was the latest example of somebody who uh, whose um, Office 365 account bit them in the butt. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The um, now they're saying they're saying it was only a subset of internal company emails and things like that. But it's that that's I feel like they they're going to need some time to dig into this. And once you get past, you know, solar winds into malware bites and all of a sudden I think everybody out there is all of a sudden realizing email is entirely insecure. And if it's on Office 365, especially so. So. Yeah, and if they'd succeeded, Malwarebytes would also have been a supply chain attack, I suppose. So absolutely, uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. We have that to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the supply chain side of this might be the second big topic to come out of this. Is we just have absolutely no idea how much of the supply chain is actively compromised, either through this vector or through other things. I mean, having you know outsourced development teams in Eastern Europe or other unsecured locations working on stuff is going to continue to need to be scrutinized. All right. Well, so what are the Chinese doing? Uh, uh, they, uh, <laughs> they're stealing PNR data, which I thought was pretty interesting, uh, um, especially because to be useful, they have to be in the, 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 um, the system in real time. They, they, there's no point in getting last week's PNR. Uh, uh, those passengers have traveled already. I, it's not completely useless, but it's not the, the most important and valuable part of uh, passenger name record data from airline reservation systems. Um, so it looks as though the Chinese have hacked some uh, airline uh, uh, reservation systems in a way that allows them to get something close to real-time data. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's break this up into two pieces. One is the real-time component, which, you know, if you're looking at active measures activity, you know, you know someone's going to be in an airport at a certain time. Maybe you can have somebody nearby. Maybe you can, you know, look at their phone. Maybe you can use some of this ultrasonic stuff and, and ping them and all this other, you know, fun stuff, right? The second piece of it is the longitudinal side of it, which goes all the way back to the OPM hack and before that, where if they could get, you know, basic basic behaviors of individuals they can figure out where they're going where they live you know you know all that kind of stuff it becomes you know very easy for these big automated systems the prc are building to identify people identify people of interest identify their patterns of behavior and then find ways to to go against them in more analog ways you know they're using this to filter down to places where they can drop in specific targeted attacks so yeah and, or or meet you at the airport with uh, with a gift. That's the other possibility. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or or identify you know identify places that you're going that maybe you shouldn't be going, and then all of a sudden they have leverage on you, right? I mean, there are a bunch of different ways you can make use of this data. All right. Well, I was thinking what the transition should be here, but uh, I think we're doing this week an awkward transition. So why not make it awkward? Uh, um, <laughs> So Brian, uh, we're, we, we last week covered both the last of the Trump administration and the first of the Biden administration, and uh, there were executive orders out of both sides of the week. I, uh, some of them basically negating the ones from just a little bit earlier. Uh, uh, can you kind of uh, bring us up to date on what the Trump administration did and what the Biden administration undid? Sure. Yeah. So uh, President Trump issued a number of executive orders, uh, one of which we'll talk about today was literally just published today in the Federal Register. Takes a little while for the old book to catch up with uh, the president. No, no, we're going to have to root uh, those people out. Order. They're probably stop the steel activists. We've got to we've got it. We've got to fire them all. <laughs> Uh, so this executive order, 13984, was issued under IEPA, the president's emergency authorities. 
it actually builds on a sanctions program that President Obama created in 2014, uh, which was designed to impose sanctions on malicious cyber activity. And this executive order is targeted at U.S. providers of what the EO calls IAAS, Infrastructure as a Service, uh, cloud computing, where uh, you offer a customer the ability to run software and store data off-site. And the premise of the executive order is this is a security problem for the U.S., a cybersecurity problem. The executive order would require commerce to publish regs um, that would require U.S. cloud companies to identify any foreign customers, keep records on those customers, potentially for sharing with the U.S. government, and uh, potentially to impose prohibitions or restrictions on accounts from customers from certain foreign countries. So nothing goes into effect immediately. Uh, this is all subject to rulemaking by commerce, 180 days out at minimum. and. You know, unlike some of the last-minute executive orders, this is one that was rumored to be under discussion for two years by the Trump administration. Uh, so this may be a case where they, you know, this was a hard, this is a hard issue. They wanted to get something on the books before the end of the administration, and it uh, was issued on on the 19th of January. Uh, so I think is, this short short version ahead. of this is it's KYC or Know Your Customer rule for. Uh, people who sell cloud services. It's it's KYC plus potentially prohibitions on certain customers, but the main purpose is KYC. I think that's right. And if I remember right, the speculation, I'm not sure I've seen this confirmed, is that uh, what's been happening is that uh, some of the more sophisticated attackers, including the guys in SolarWinds, have been buying their infrastructure in the United States uh, uh, from big uh, and small cloud providers um, on the theory, which I think is a little um, excessive, that uh, somehow NSA can't find them because they're operating domestically and um, uh, therefore NSA doesn't have the authority to look for them. Uh, of course, once you're in the United States, if somebody has a reason to look for you, they can certainly get court orders that will give them access uh, without any uh, difficult interception problems. Um, so whether that really is the reason for this or not is unclear, but there's certainly been a lot of attacks that have relied heavily on U.S. infrastructure. Yeah, that's a senior, unnamed senior administration officials were quoted as saying just the very types of things that you just mentioned, Stuart. That's right. All right. Uh, the thing I was interested in was the power grid rule because this really is, this is the, in cyber, this is the first of the Trump uh, orders that has been not revoked, but suspended. Uh, and it was interesting because it came in an executive order that had frankly nothing to do with cyber. It was all about uh, the Keystone uh, XL pipeline and environmental and energy issues, and it handed off a lot of uh, review to the Energy Department. Um, and then buried in there was something, uh, after it had revoked all of these uh, executive orders, was one suspending for 90 days an executive order that uh, uh, restricted sales of Chinese um, bulk power 
facilities, uh, uh, mainly, I think, uh, uh, big transmission facilities. Uh, um, uh, that was puzzling to me, but there had been a lot of, because there'd been a lot of action right up until January 15, the administration was using that executive order, the Trump administration was using that executive order to impose restrictions on sales of bulk transformers uh, into the United States. I I suspect that this may be the case where the electric and power industry was seeking this suspension for 90 days. The original executive order was issued in May 2020 uh, to cover an issue that I think it's not a political issue. It's the idea that our bulk power system is subject to cybersecurity vulnerabilities. It, you know, one of the main attacks last year was uh, on a control system in our bulk, bulk power system. But this is the executive order was very broadly written. Uh, Energy uh, passed a draft reg in the summer that was very poorly received by the industry. And so, uh, Stuart, you referred to an order that the Secretary of Energy put out right at the end of the administration uh, targeted at Chinese products in a very narrow uh, class of bulk power control products for a very narrow class of uh, bulk power providers. Uh, But the EO itself is much broader. Uh, And so I I would anticipate that something will come back after 90 days, uh, some revised form of this executive order. But this may be one where the industry said we need some relief because what's been done to date isn't really working and doesn't really make sense. Yeah, if, if there are reporters, I know there are reporters who listen to the podcast. This is a great story that hasn't been covered. All we've seen is little bits of it. Uh, you know, there was a, a transformer being delivered to a private customer in the United States from China, and it was seized in Houston and shipped to Sandia Labs, if I remember right, uh, to be taken apart in detail, which raised, you know, obviously the concern that it had been tampered with uh, in China in a way that would have cast doubt on its ability to provide service in a crisis. This executive order comes out, the regs come out, there are continuing activity here. Um, and I'm, I'm willing to bet this is, uh, uh, you're exactly right, that uh, there's probably been some private sector lobbying by uh, power companies. There could easily have been some lobbying on behalf of Chinese interests. Uh, this is something the Biden administration is really going to have to watch because if they get their, uh, caught with their hand in that cookie jar, it's going to be miserable. Um, and interestingly, this order is the only one, this this provision is the only part of the executive order that suspends rather than revokes the order. It's as though somebody had been lobbied hard and said, well, I don't know what the answer is, but I guess I'm going to put it on hold so that I can find out. Yeah, may, maybe so. I mean, I, I take that as a signal that the administration intends to do something in this space. They're just not sure that this is the right answer. I think that's 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 quite possible. Uh, uh, it comes at a time when I'm starting to hear again, and I've, I've heard this off and on for five years, that there are major vulnerabilities in our operational control systems in the grid and that uh, there are respectable people who are saying that what the power industry has done is double down on protecting their IT networks 
so that they don't have to do anything about their operational networks. And I understand why they would want to do that. You can go in on the weekend while your IT system is down, take it down for a couple of hours, put it back up, and nobody notices. You can't do that with electricity. Uh, It has to be running all the time, which means that you you never want to turn it off because you're not quite sure it's going to come back the way you want. Um, But that means that there are vulnerabilities, I'm sure, in the operational side that have not been fixed for years and that that people don't fully understand. Uh, And uh, um, all of that suggests that we could have a reckoning in the uh, power uh, uh, cybersecurity, operational control security system coming um, at any time. So I, I, uh, let's hope we can get a good reporter to really dig into that and get somebody from the Trump administration uh, to dish on what the problems were. All right. Um, the, the, President Trump is not done. What about drones, Maury? Well, this is very closely tied to the uh, what Brian was talking about. One of his last executive orders was um, to ask all U.S. agencies to assess the security risks of uh, Chinese drones and to um, and to pri- prioritize removal of them. Apparently, until January, the Interior Department was um, had about 800 Chinese drones in its fleet, and um, and has grounded them since. And you can see why there would be concern about this. Um, you know, if the Chinese can see what drones are seeing, I'm sure they would do it. Um, and the, the biggest, the world's biggest drone manufacturer with a significant technical advantage on other companies is DJI, um, which was added to the uh, entity list in December. So there, there is a lot going on here. And this is one that the Biden administration has not revoked this one either. And I think the Biden administration probably will keep taking a hard look at this kind of thing. I, you know, I, the, the time for, for suspending and uh, revoking the executive orders of your predecessor is the first week that you're in office. After that, it's your decision. You're not just suspending the last guy. You're making a decision you don't want to do that anymore. Uh, and you own it in a way that, uh, so it, it becomes more costly to suspend executive orders from the past if you do it after the first week or so. Um, and so it is interesting that none of this cybersecurity stuff other than the bulk power uh, uh, problem has been suspended. They could do it, you know, tomorrow or uh, 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 later in the week. But if they don't do it this week, uh, I'm guessing that they're going to have to be very selective about what they do do. Yeah. And I wonder where they get their drones. I mean, there there are other manufacturers, but DJI is so far ahead and some of the other Chinese manufacturers are. The question is, do you couple this with a domestic, uh, you know, uh, some industrial strategy to try to build up a U.S. drone capability? I think you kind of have to. I I think you have to do it that way. Uh, uh, If you if you uh, if you want somebody to play, we we make a lot of good expensive drones. But uh, the stuff that has mass market appeal, uh, I don't think there are a lot of U.S. manufacturers left. All right. As we wave goodbye to the Trump administration, uh, uh, the uh, 
Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs is administering a swift kick in the pants to uh, a lot of people whose names we recognize. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is this is turnabout is fair play, I guess. Yeah, I was interested. They didn't sanction uh, President Trump himself, but they uh, they went after uh, Mike Pompeo, Peter Navarro, Alex Azar, John Bolton, Bannon. And they impose sanctions that they can't enter China and they and the businesses that they're associated with can't do business in China. And it's, yeah, it's, and based- it's interesting. I, I, you know, I, I have to say the names are not a surprise except maybe Alex Azar. Uh, it tells you who got under their skin. Uh, and Alex got under their skin, not because he's particularly a China hater, but because he was uh, uh, criticizing them on the uh, coronavirus. Yeah, and there were a few others, uh, less prominent names. But um, I think, it, like you said, it's a kind of a kick in the pants. I mean, uh, I'm I'm not expecting things to get great between the U.S. and China all of a sudden. But I think maybe this is their way to say we're really pissed off. Uh, and then they've made good noises. They hope things will go a little bit better now. To tell the truth, if I were somebody like Bannon or Bolton, uh, uh, I wouldn't have gone there anyway they're looking for somebody to arrest uh, as a way of uh, um, uh, developing leverage uh, uh, in the uh, uh, Canadian uh, uh, Huawei CFO case. Uh, And they have arrested some Canadians who are almost certainly innocent uh, businessmen. So you're, you're taking a risk if you go there. Yeah, I think that's right. But you know, which takes us back to your point. I think it's, it's an, it's an expression of peak rather than um, a major policy initiative. I mean, obviously, it's not going to hit trade significantly to have a dozen people who can't do business in China. All right. So have we reached peak Bitcoin peak? That is to say, uh, Janet Yellen is expressing peak at Bitcoin uh, uh, and suggesting it needs to be curtailed. Uh, uh, Sultan, I thought this was interesting because uh, I wrote a, a, a letter to uh, uh, Secretary Mnuchin saying 15 days over Christmas break is not enough time for people to comment on your uh, cryptocurrency reg. You would be smarter to delay the comment period, give people a real chance to uh, uh, comment on it, make it less controversial both politically and legally, uh, and just talk quietly to Janet Yellen about the importance of dealing with cryptocurrency. And I, I don't know if he did, but she certainly is sounding every bit as skeptical as Mnuchin was. She is. And, you know, she has a unique experience, right, from previous roles to be able to talk about the the the, the sovereign currency of the United States and, and other potential competitors to that. Right. Um, I, I, I would say you couple that with Michael Barr being the apparent nominee to be comptroller of the currency and him having been an advisor to a cryptocurrency and, and, his, and the kind of overall love of the fintech community for him. You add uh, Chopra at CFPB and the and the evolution of what CFPB is about to, to grow into over the next uh, few years. And, and you're in an intriguing situation, right? And for those who don't know, I mean, the U.S. banking and financial regulatory community 
community is is over a hundred different agencies at the state and federal level. There are international issues, there are norms, there are a bunch of other things that that apply to this. And so, on top of that, you have an entire category of actors who are non-regulated, of which most of the you know the cryptocurrencies live in that world as well, payments players, etc. And across that entire spectrum, you know, at some point, we as a regulated financial sector saying we because that's my day job uh, currently um, are going to have to to solve the issues of cryptocurrency and how does it fit inside of the regulatory environment um, I have yet to see um, and this is true I think of the Trump administration and the and the new Biden administration uh, kind of a cohesive, a cohesive strategy around it you know what are we going to do about it how are we going to fit this all together there is a broader issue beyond just cryptocurrency and, and to talk about digital assets as we move to digital records away from paper records and continue to go down that path. So you put all this together, and I guess I'm not surprised at all to see uh, you know, uh, Janet Yellen's statement. I do, I do kind of hope for a more strategic perspective on this as we, as we look to figure out ways to make this work, because right now the United States is a bit of a pariah, right? If you go and you actually try to do anything with a number of crypto platforms out there, it's you can use this as long as you aren't basically the axis of e Evil, you know, North Korea, Iran, etc., and the United States, right? And so we we have to move from being outside the system to doing something. And the U.S. is more well positioned than other markets to actually do something useful with it. And so, you know, I think that's that's kind of the issue. I I would love to see uh, more co more collaboration amongst the various regulatory bodies to get to something that allowed, you know, for example, banks to play in the crypto space in a, in a thoughtful way, in a secured way, in a regulated way. You know, at some point, and this is where the, and this is kind of the cherry on top of this comment. At some point, Elon Musk is going to announce a cryptocurrency for Mars, right? And of at course. some point, we're going to have to figure out how to make that currency operate in relation to the other sovereign, all the other sovereign currencies that exist on Earth. And so now, all of a sudden, we have to start thinking about interplanetary banking. And good Lord, would I have never thought I'd say that on a podcast or anywhere <laughs> other than after a couple of drinks. <laughs> <laughs> well, really, the podcast goes much better with a couple of drinks. So uh, it, uh, <laughs> I highly recommend that. But yeah, it, it, it sounds the idea of interplanetary uh, 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 cryptocurrency, probably we've got a little ways to go. Uh, because uh, if you have to actually go there in person to, to cash it in, it might might take a while. Okay, uh, Maury, this sounds sort of like a dog bites man story. Um, the data protection authorities, according to the Wall Street Journal in Europe, are getting tougher on employee monitoring, uh, which is the one area where I always thought that data protection authorities were willing to do th something to European employers uh, because they were under pressure from unions to do something about it. So this this sounds like it was kind of overdetermined, uh, but what are the DPAs doing and how worried should uh, um, business be about it? Well, I don't think it's big news, but the Wall Street Journal article is kind of a timely reminder that this is an increasing issue. GDPR came in two and a half years ago, and we've seen a slowly rising tide of enforcement. And German authorities in particular have gotten interested in this employee monitoring issue. The one that just happened that led to the article is the DPA in Lower Saxony issued a 10 million euro fine against a company called notebooksbilliger.de, which means cheap notebooks, um, I assume computers, for employee video monitoring. 
And they've responded indignantly saying, you know, these these computers go missing and we have to have uh, <laughs> monitoring around to see where it happens. We're not doing it to check out their personal behavior. Um, it does seem pretty aggressive to me, but they're particularly from German authorities there. Uh, you know, I think it's something where even for what seems like a normal application of these technologies as a company, you've got to think about how you're doing it, what what study you do in advance as well, uh, a data protection impact assessment. Yeah, although again, my, my rule of thumb is uh, ask, will this piss off the labor unions or will the labor unions use this as leverage to get something else? Then you've got a problem. Uh, that's, that's the best way to decide whether you've got a problem uh, as opposed to just talking to your lawyers. Yeah, and, and the works councils have a lot of power in, in Germany. So um, I, I think that's, it's a fair perspective. Not a straight line, at least linked issues. Exactly. Brian, there's a long um, transition book from the Cyberspace Solarium Commission, uh, which I have to say is uh, really doing a remarkable job of staying relevant and kind of pushing its basic philosophy and recommendations. Uh, they, they produced a report over a year ago, I think. Uh, uh, and then they stuck around to write legislation to stick in the National Defense Authorization Act. They've still got legislation they want into the next National Defense Authorization Act. And they wrote a transition uh, uh, memo to the Biden administration that actually looked you know, pretty sensible. Yeah, this is, a, you know, kind of a how to organize the government memo uh, from the people who are writing laws to help organize the government. Uh, so, you know, the top priority is to staff the new office of the National Cyber Director, which was created, of course, pursuant to a recommendation of the Solarium Commission, uh, but which seems generally to be perceived as a good idea. Uh, this is going to be a not in one government agency uh, office headed by a Senate confirmed uh, director. Uh, there have been reports uh, that Jen Easterly may be under consideration for that position. Uh, somebody who is highly regarded in this area would, uh, my view would be, would be a great uh, selection. Um, and so can I, can uh, I, I think, can I offer a view on this? I, I not, I don't really know Jen Easterly, uh, but I do think there's already a conflict being set up uh, or maybe the uh, transition people on the Biden team were smart enough to head it off. Uh, but the thing I didn't agree with the Cyberspace Sol Solarium Commission on was creating this office, giving it guaranteed authorities, uh, a big staff, putting it in the White House, and then you knew this was coming, making it a, a Senate-confirmed position. Uh, that, if, if that's what happens, the office doesn't really work in the White House because it doesn't really work exclusively for the president. It works for, mostly for the president and partly for the senators to whom promises were made in the course of getting confirmed. Um, and that's always a problem for White Houses. What I thought they did was create a deputy national security advisor in the form of Ann Newberger, who comes from NSA. Uh, and I think they're going to ask Jen Easterly to report to her because otherwise you'd have a deputy national security advisor for cybersecurity and the like. And then you have this cybersecurity director. Um, you can't have two people that high ranking just sitting around in the White House. So I'm guessing... 
Jen Easterly reports to Ann Newberger, and that allows them to be more comfortable that uh, Easterly is not carrying out a uh, an agenda that was foisted on her by the senators who confirmed her. I think, you know, Jen, and if you don't know Jen, you should definitely get her on your show, Stuart. Uh, she's a really, she's a great uh, voice in this area. Uh, Jen and Ann know each other from the NSA. They're both veterans of the NSA. Uh, I think they'll work well together. You know, it may be that if uh, the, the new office is more operational and the deputy uh, national security advisor is more policy oriented. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree, of course, you know, it's hard to establish operations for agencies, whether you're in the White House or not, when you're not part of the agency. And that's always been a problem of coordinating cyber policy across the government is, you know, you could have the fanciest title in the world, but if you're not answering to the secretary of your agency, you know, your your authority is going to be somewhat limited. Uh, so that to me seems like one of the bigger challenges of this operation is, can they actually get within DHS with, you know, can they work with CISA? Can they work with the other people that are part of the U.S. government cybersecurity apparatus in a way that's effective? I predict they'll never make it as big an office as the Cyberspace Solarian Commission imagined it was going to be, uh, precisely for the reason you say. You can't have an NSC office that is big enough to actually do something. All they can do is more and more microscopically micromanage somebody else who's actually doing it. It's just too hard. Um, And so uh, at some point the micromanagement will become unbearable to DHS and maybe to NSA and the others who are engaged here. Uh, and they will, uh, they will say, really, uh, why don't you send some of those people here and they can actually do the job they're uh, yelling at us for not doing? Could be. I mean, you, you see analogies in the National Counterterrorism Center elsewhere where the government has a government-wide problem they're trying to solve you don't want to place it in one agency because they will control the the apparatus, but you take it outside the agency and then suddenly nobody wants to play ball. So yeah. it's going to be a challenge. So that's, that, that reflects our difference in experience. You worked at NSC and uh, uh, understand uh, its frustrations and what it can do. And all I got from NSC was uh, micromanagement. So uh, <laughs> I... <laughs> Spoken like a true DHS veteran, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> well, they kept telling us how much help they were giving us, uh, you know, so that we could go down there every Friday and report on all the things that they thought we should have done that week. All right, uh, let's do some quick hits. Uh, uh, Parler or Parlayer or Parlay, uh, uh, w- however you say it, they have lost their uh, a bid to force AWS to take them back. Uh, and the judge basically said, hey, you know, the, uh, the terms of service say you're in breach if you have violent speech uh, or criminal activity on your network. And they showed us stuff that looked like criminal activity. Uh, You could find that on any social network, but uh, AWS has chosen to enforce this uh, set of terms of service against Parler and they're probably law proof. Uh, So that's uh, uh, Parler. Sultan, uh, uh, President Biden's Peloton is a security risk. I mean, of all the things to be talking about, right? Um, but uh, I, so when I read this story, I immediately thought of two things. Number one was, oh, Lord, I need to unhook my Peloton as well, which was you know, not, probably not the right one. And the second one was the oldest president we've ever had is on a Peloton probably more than I am. Ergo, I now feel bad. And so yes, let's, you should uh, feel bad. You know, 
No, but you can imagine the Russians breaking in and saying, your moose and squirrel are beating you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Cause him to speed up until he keels over. Yeah, I mean, the question for me is, I really want to know what his profile is, right? Is it is it Joe? You know, is it just like Joe? And he's got the hat and the sunglasses and all of that. But, you know, it does speak to a very large point, which is we have to accept that there are a lot of wireless devices floating around places that we wouldn't expect them to be, you know, whether or not it's a Peloton or a Fitbit or, you know, any of these other things. Number one. Number two is going back to the story about the PRC going after airline activity. You know, what if they're now, you know, looking at, you know, someone's Peloton activity or their heart rate and all of a sudden they're like, okay, well, we know he's not doing very well, so let's add more stress to his life and see if we can, you know, push him into a hypertensive episode yes. or you know, whatever, right? It's it, it speak it speaks to these kind of doomsday scenarios about data flowing everywhere and all of this. And I, I think if anything, it, it it does two things. Number one is it makes all of us realize that our president at least has a Peloton, which is great, um, and everyone should stay healthy. But then the second is that uh, I, I really don't envy the internal network security guys at the White House and and you know what they're having to do and how many different devices and how many different Wi-Fi networks and how to find the MAC address on a Peloton and all the other things like that. <laughs> no, you're right. It, 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 and they get this every year. It's, it, it, some sexy new consumer goodie comes in and they realize that it's a security risk and they have to develop well, some clunk, clunky version well, so of it. If you, if you, yeah, a few years ago, I'm sure you guys all remember when they moved the PDDB to, a, to an iPad or some sort of tablet. I'm assuming an iPad just because of brand affinity, of course. But, um, you know, and, and all the discussions around moving that onto it and how it was basically a PDF. And then it moved, you know, kind of continued to get to, to move on and on from that. And now it's like everyone's freaking out. Oh, my gosh. The PDB is, is electronic and, and people can find it and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, I, I like getting screenshots from the Wall Street Journal and New York Times just as much as anyone else. So, yeah. Well, I, I actually, when I, in 2007 or so, I had a, uh, early version of an iPad. It wasn't an iPad. It was something else. It was just a reader so that I could bring my, uh, um, uh, all of the clips and memos of the day with me. Uh, and I tried once to get into the sit room with that and uh, uh, never again. Uh, <laughs> I mean, so. I mean, that's, that, that, that just, that's a big old no right there. <laughs> exactly. I had all the, I, I had all the connectivity turned off, but nonetheless, uh, the answer was no, which is not surprising. Uh, uh, and I, I'm with you. Um, there are a lot of things about President Biden I'm probably not going to like, but I admire his fitness. I think he's uh, he's in good shape physically, uh, uh, and it's um, you know I hope I'm uh, uh, working as hard to, in the exercise room when I'm his age as he is. Don't we all? Yeah, exactly. Well, we we, we just want to be above ground when we're his age. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd be satisfied with that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Speaking of uh, somebody who'd like to be above ground, but isn't exactly, uh, um, uh, Mike Ellis was named NSA's general counsel on the very last day of the Trump administration, the last full day. Um, his, his appointment had been, he'd been chosen kind of just after the election in a regular, pretty much regular uh, approach to uh, choosing the general counsel, uh, a a panel of uh, experts from inside the administration, inside NSA, uh, chose him formally. The uh, DOD general counsel makes the choice usually with the concurrence of the National Security Agency's director. Um, 
that all happened, but it happened after the election, which made it look bad. Uh, and then it got slow rolled pretty significantly. Usually, once you're chosen, you just start work. Uh, he'd had clearances for years, but they managed to make his clearance process last for weeks. He was finally installed at the insistence of the Department of Defense, uh, the secretary, uh, who I think felt he was being slow rolled, uh, and then was immediately suspended because the inspector general was doing an investigation of the way in which he was chosen. So this will this will probably end badly for all concerned. Uh, it, uh, uh, it's going to be he has no claim to the job. He can he has a claim to be hired as an intelligence. SES, sir, but he doesn't get to be general counsel if somebody wants to move him out. There's already a general, an acting general counsel uh, from the Biden administration at DOD uh, uh, GC's office. So uh, I think um, the likelihood that he'll be reassigned is high. I think it's a little unfair. Uh, uh, he he did get chosen late, but cripes, I was I was chosen in August, uh, I think, uh, before uh, George Bush, H.W. Bush, lost the election, uh, and they kept me for a year and a half. Uh, uh, so usually when, when you're chosen, they don't say, oh, yo, you were chosen by the wrong people, you're out, uh, unless there's a very good reason they keep you. Uh, this is uh, uh, one more norm broken down by the people who purport to be defending all the norms against uh, uh, President Trump. All right, uh, in, end of rant. Our silence on that doesn't necessarily mean that we agree with you, Stuart. I Just understand. let the record reflect. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. See, I was, so I was actually uh, going to say, I think it speaks more highly to Stuart than anything else. You were just so good that they're just like, no, let's keep him. He's fantastic. I will only say that uh, uh, Jamie Gorelick, who was the, the general counsel who kept me, uh, probably wouldn't have put it that way. I think what she used to say is, well, Stuart and I had an arrangement in which I pretended to supervise him and he pretended he worked for me. <laughs> and, and for those who've worked with me in the past, uh, you'll know what I mean uh, or what she meant. Uh, okay, Maury, take us out of here. The European Parliament is being investigated by Europe's uh, data regulator over uh, the website it set up to monitor coronavirus tests. Uh, uh, and the U.S. is the bad guy. What's going on? Well, um, uh, the thing, I'm not sure the U.S. was being the bad guy. This is the uh, the European Parliament being the bad guy. And the thing I, I like the best of this was about this story is that it's great for Stuart Baker's schadenfreude. But um, that uh, the, the European Data Protection Supervisor, which is the agency that looks after compliance by European Union institutions, at the instigation of six members of the European Parliament and NOYB, none of your business, which is the uh, NGO associated with Max Schrems are going after the European Parliament saying that you're the, the COVID-19 testing site for European Parliament testing was using improper tracking cookies. And, you know, it's a small issue, but it's kind of an illustration of what a mess the cookie rules are in the EU. 
I think it's ridiculous. I'm sure you'll think it's more ridiculous. Oh yeah, no, though you have to click now. You have to click through twice, or 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 they they are more insistent uh, uh, and cover more of the page before you click through. I thought though, I thought part of the fight was that uh, there was an allegation that the data was being stored in the United States. Um, I may have missed that uh, piece of it. I or they the may have changed them. Was, that may have been an that allegation that was that didn't prove out. Yeah, I, I thought the key issue was that they were tracking, that they were using tracking cookies that they hadn't properly disclosed in a cookies notice. So it is uh, at least in part about these annoying notices. And there, and you may be right, there may be, a, I, I wouldn't put it past Schrems to, uh, to add a US issue where possible. Yeah, but it is nice to see you know, the European Parliament voted for more privacy and they're getting it good and hard. Okay, uh, Thanks, uh, uh, Maury. Thanks also, Brian Sultan. This was great. Uh, uh, I want to thank Sound uh, Wiseman Sound Design for our music. Uh, this has been episode 346 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, be sure to send us suggestions for people that we should have on the program. Uh, Cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, we'll send you a mug if you suggest somebody and they come on the show. Please Give us a review, uh, vote for us in contests for the best uh, uh, cyber law podcast. We ended up in the top 10 uh, of privacy podcasts in privacy podcast DB20 rankings. Um, so top 10 for privacy podca podcasts, and I'm guaranteeing you number one in anti-privacy podcasts. Uh, so please join us again next week as we once again provide insight into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.